37 trillion cells, all working together in perfect harmony. Normally, things run smoothly. You're kept healthy. But what happens when some of them go awry and you become the victim of a biological crime? You can't identify the culprit, but you know you're going down. You have no choice but to put your trust in the disease detectives. This week, we're going to dig deep into the world of diagnostics. We're going to talk with a doctor who has specialized in this profession and shared her experiences with the world in the New York Times and on TV. We'll also learn how the world of diagnostics is changing thanks to the World Health Organization. And in our SAS class, we're going to learn more about the people who work behind the scenes to ensure your medical problem is brought to light. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to take you into the world of trying to find out what's wrong so that you and your doctor can make it right. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. It's an experience many of us know well. We're nervously sitting in the waiting room. We know something is off. We don't feel right. But we don't know what's wrong. We're taken to the examination room and meet the doctor. We explain what we're experiencing. We detail the symptoms and our feelings. Notes are taken. So are our vitals. There's a few pokes and prods. And then, the doctor sits and ponders. We hope for an answer and expect to hear an easy solution. Medication. But then, after the quiet reflection ends, the physician reaches for a form and starts to scribble down instructions. Today, you're not going to get the response you want. Instead, you're going to have to go for some tests. You have entered the realm of diagnostics. Since the beginning of medicine, we have been trying to figure out how to identify problems with health. Although at times the methods have been archaic and maybe not necessarily ethical, the aim has always been true. Something is wrong and needs to be identified in order to figure out how to make you better. But there's something about diagnosis that most people don't realize. There's almost an infinite number of ways the body can go wrong. For most of us, the tests we take, x-rays, urine analysis, blood collection, throat swabs, MRI and CAT scans, and those electrographs for our hearts and our heads can provide an answer. The results shed light on the situation, and the doctor is given the ability to resolve the problem. But that's not always the case. In addition to those 37 trillion cells, there are thousands of different types of molecules from proteins to fats to sugars, all of which could be the source of a problem. And don't forget the tens of trillions of microbes that inhabit you. Sometimes, trying to identify the culprit requires extensive investigation and an expertise that a general physician does not have. Sometimes, you need a specialist in diagnostics. A disease detective. 
If you happen to remember the popular TV show House MD, the title character Gregory House was a diagnostic genius who managed to offer the patient of the week a diagnosis, a means for treatment, and of course, a healthy dose of sarcasm and wit. The lure of a disease detective isn't just limited to television, though. In the New York Times, there has been a long-running column called Diagnosis. It focuses on cases that are difficult to solve and explore how the doctors manage to get to the truth. I bring these up not just to show you the value of diagnostics in our lives, but also as a means to introduce my first guest. She is both the author of the column and the inspiration behind House MD. Her name is Lisa Sanders, and she is a clinical educator in the Primary Care Internal Medicine Residency Program at Yale University. She has been exploring the world of diagnostics for decades and is quite possibly the best person to take us into this world. When I was a medical student, you know, I had no idea, really, what doctors did. Um, and I had in my mind this idea of, you know, making house calls with, uh, you know, visiting people in their homes or having people come to my office. I really didn't know what I would do when I got to their house or what they would do when they got to my office. So when I started doing my internal medicine rotation, I went to this meeting that every resident in internal medicine goes to called resident report. And in it, a case is presented the way it presents in real time. Like the patient comes to the emergency room with a chief complaint and then they tell you their story and then you, uh, you know, get additional history and you, uh, you know, get tests, uh, you examine them, you get tests. And I realized hearing that, I realized really for the first time the diagnosis was not like math, which is what I thought it was like, you know, like where four times six would always be 24. A fever and a rash would always be, you know, X, Y, or Z. It wasn't like that at all. Instead of being like math, it was a little detective story, that it was a little mystery, and the doctor was the Sherlock Holmes of the story. Um, and I loved that. You know, I was a huge Sherlock Holmes fan when I was uh, a kid, and I continue to be. Um, and I that completely appealed to me. And so even though I had sort of toyed with various specialties, as we all do in medical school, I realized this is where I belong. This is the story that really sets me on fire. This appeals to me. So take us through your process, or should I say deduction, for making a diagnosis. <laughs> Most of the time, making a diagnosis is straightforward. People come in and say, doctor, my neck hurts, or I have a backache. I lifted something heavily. And, uh, you know, ever since then, I've been having this terrible pain in my back. Not a mystery, you know, and, and that's good because that makes, uh, that means that we can move on from figuring out what you have to figuring out how you can feel better and what you can do about it. But, you know, some portion, I don't know, 15 or 20% of cases, maybe even not that many, are things that require you to actually think. You're looking for a category. You're looking for a bucket. You're looking for a, a way, a, a way into what happened. You know, and so often this is a systems way. I have a bellyache. It hurts after I eat. You know, that's, that suggests one, that's one bucket that suggests a whole bunch of things. And then you try to figure out 
which item in the bucket fits best. And then you examine them. When you examine them, you don't just mindlessly listen to their heart and their lungs. You choose you a, a physical exam. It's just like any other test. You have to have an expectation on what you're going to find, if this is true or if that is true. That way, when you get something that's either normal or abnormal, it has meaning. If you just go through the motions, you're not without – without linking what you find to what you're thinking about, then, then it's a waste of time. Once you do that, then you should have some sense of what's going on. And then it's time to, to get other kinds of tests, tests that you have to get with the patient not in the room usually. You, know, you send them to the lab, you send them to radiology. Um, but again, you pick the test. You don't shoot them in the face with a diagnostic shotgun. You don't, you don't go... Like like Gregory House used to do, oh, test them for all the viruses, because <laughs> that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's stupid. You know, I loved Hugh Laurie. I was less fond of Gregory House. And then you uh, uh, and then when the tests come back, it either furthers your belief that it's X, Y or Z, or you see that you are totally wrong and you have to think again. When you're an expert or when you've been doing this for a while, you have, uh, you have scripts, we call them illness scripts, in your head. What you're looking for is, well, no matter how sophisticated you are, you're looking for somebody, that's what the bucket is, this illness script, something that, 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 that you recognize in some way, and that's diagnosis. Diagnosis is really a process of recognizing somebody or something. You have to admit, some people think that they know more than they actually do. I mean, we can't ignore the fact that some people will attempt to self-diagnose with the help of Dr. Google or WebMD. How do you let them down nicely? Well, first of all, I'm always thrilled when people are totally involved in their health care. I would much rather talk somebody out of chronic Lyme disease than I would try to talk somebody into the fact that they have diabetes and they're not taking care of it or they have high blood pressure and they need to take a pill for it. Somebody who's involved in their health is somebody who is going to try and get better. Um, so I also think that it's not like before Google existed, we didn't ask anybody about what we had. You know, before there was Dr. Google, there was Dr. Mom. You know, I mean, there was always somebody we would go to uh, to help us figure out what was going on. It's so not true. like we just suffered quietly before there was Google. <laughs> so true. Um, Google does give people a sense of expertise. And, you know, it's not wrong. You know, I mean, uh, I would say it's true that uh, sometimes people do what doctors do all the time. We call it early closure. They find something that appeals to them, that they recognize in themselves, and they're like, this is it. And sometimes they're right. Often they're wrong. Um, but for me, what's interesting to me is to find out what it is that they saw in that that they recognized, because that's a really good starting place to come to a diagnosis. So diagnosis is not, I mean, house makes it seem like it's just 
this guy sitting around, you know, uh, throwing a softball or a tennis ball at the wall or, or playing golf with his cane and figuring it out. It's not like that at all. Um, it's really much more collaborative. You've been so prolific in bringing diagnostics to the public in the New York Times with your column diagnosis and, of course, House MD. Now you're working on a program with Netflix, and I believe it's based on your column, where you're featuring people who have gone through the process of dealing with undiagnosed diseases. What should we expect from the show, and how excited are you to bring more mysteries to us? (laughs) Well, you know, from like 2011 until 2016, I wrote a column, in addition to my diagnosis column, I wrote this other column that only existed, didn't exist in the magazine, only existed online called Think Like a Doctor. And in this in this uh, column, I would tell the story of, of a solved problem. I didn't say what the solution was. I would tell the patient's story till just before the diagnosis was made so that uh, the reader would have access to all of the information that the doctor had at the time the doctor made the diagnosis or whoever it is that made the diagnosis. And then I would stop and say, what do you think this guy has or this woman has? And people would write in and it was amazing. I mean, many people who wrote in were doctors, but you know what? Many people who wrote in were not doctors. Um, so I was so excited by the power of the New York Times readers that when um, Scott Rudin approached me in the New York Times about doing this show, I, I leaped, I leapt at the chance to do it because I just think that it's, it answers a really interesting question. It, it, it says we have all these smart people who, who think about stuff and care about stuff and are willing to expend a little time and energy uh, trying to work out a puzzle. Maybe we can use that. Maybe we can um, harness some of that to help people out. In the developed world, diagnostics are pretty accessible. Healthcare facilities are usually capable of performing the tests needed to detect a problem inside of you. The same cannot be said for the rest of the world. In developing countries, The availability of diagnostic equipment is sparse at best, and the ability to test even the simplest of samples, urine, may be challenged. This issue was a major factor in the Ebola epidemic in West Africa some years ago. The lack of an appropriate diagnostic test left many people wondering if they had been exposed to the virus and whether they should seek isolation and treatment. Although numbers are sketchy, Proper diagnostics could have helped to save thousands of the 11,325 lives lost. But all that may change thanks to the World Health Organization. They have released a list of essential diagnostic tests every country needs to put into place to improve global health. The list comprises of 113 different tests. 55 are for the diagnosis of diseases like HIV, tuberculosis, malaria, hepatitis B and C, human papillomavirus, and syphilis. The other 58 tests are necessary to ensure most diseases can be identified quickly. For global health experts, the release of this list has been a moment to be cherished. Although the adoption is not mandatory, 
The hope is that countries will come on board and do what they can to improve the diagnostic field in their country. My next guest has been actively involved with the World Health Organization in the fight against HIV and tuberculosis. His work has helped to inspire the development of this essential list and he has actively supported its formation and its acceptance. His name is Dr. Madhukar Pai and he is a Canadian Research Chair in Epidemiology and the Director of Global Health Programs at McGill University. What has the announcement done for you or what does it mean for you and what do you believe its value is moving forward? Um, I'm um, super, super excited about uh, the WHO's uh, progress in this area. And the story is um, WHO has always seen the value of essential medicines. Uh, 40 years ago, WHO put out the first model list of essential medicines. And, uh, and for decades, uh, they continue to push for greater access in low and middle income countries for essential medicines. But it's only last year, as you, as you mentioned, for the first ever time, WHO produced an essential diagnostics list, which already tells you how far behind medicines diagnostics are, um, which boggles my mind because you would think that essential medicines require essential diagnostics. If you can't even uh, diagnose a condition, then how on earth will medicines be uh, appropriately used? Be that as it may, WHO did wake up after a long time and um, uh, developed the first ever essential diagnostics list. So the first version of the list contains uh, 113 tests of which 58 are uh, general laboratory tests like um, hemoglobin, blood sugar, cholesterol, and so on and so forth. And 55 are uh, disease-specific tests of public health importance, such as HIV tests, TB tests, malaria, hepatitis B and C, syphilis, HPV virus, and so on and so forth. Um, And I think by by developing the list, and by also keeping the list updated, the second edition will already be out in 2019 this year, WHO has sent a very strong signal in global health community that they, they think that diagnostic tests are as essential as medicines, which is quite remarkable and um, says a lot uh, about uh, WHO's willingness to, to look at it. Uh, it actually makes a lot of sense today because WHO is now working very hard on universal health coverage. And, and, uh, and um, primary health care is at the very heart of USC, and uh, it's impossible to deliver quality primary health care if we can't even diagnose common and um, important conditions. So, so that's why I think WHO's effort makes a lot of sense. And I'm hoping that um, uh, the, the, the list will not just stay a list at Geneva. I think the, the list for it to have an impact uh, must be the adopted by uh, low and middle income countries. Uh, once countries take up the list, modify it to suit their epidemiology and their disease burden and their needs, um, they can actually then start implementing it. For example, they could say any test that we put on our national list uh, will be made more affordable or will be guaranteed to be available at health centers. Supply chain can be improved. Um, cost can be reduced. Uh, price controls can be applied. Uh, quality assurance can be improved, accreditation can be done. So a whole bunch of things can happen around the national list of essential diagnostics. Where do you want to see laboratory diagnostics heading into the future, not just in low and middle income countries, but all over the world in reference to global health 
and specifically to your disease of focus tuberculosis. TB uh, has, has, has a cause of great, great frustration, actually, because if you walked into uh, an average TB clinic in an average low and middle income country, you would still find TB being diagnosed by a century old uh, diagnostic test. Uh, namely sputum smear microscopy. Um, and uh, for latent TB, we still use the tuberculin skin test, which dates back to Robert Koch, um, who used it uh, in the 1880s. So um, the, the TB field is desperately in need of innovation, uh, and innovations are happening. For example, the gene expert uh, point-of-care uh, automated molecular test um, is easily the best TB technology we have today. But I would love to see technologies like that reach more and more patients. I would like to see every patient with TB uh, get diagnosed, not with sputum smear microscopy, but with molecular tests like GeneXpert. For drug-resistant TB, I would love to see greater use of sequencing uh, to figure out which drugs are working or not. And I would like to see every single TB patient uh, started on treatment on the basis of drug resistance uh, results, not empirically or not a blanket uh, regimen for all patients with TB. So improving the diagnosis of TB is an absolute priority. But on a broader level for global health as such, um, I would like to see greater emphasis in all countries, low and middle income countries, on laboratory strengthening. Uh, For decades, the global community ignored uh, lab capacity building and I think we are starting to pay a price for it now. The overuse of antibiotics is a huge indicator that we had failed all these years to uh, give our uh, healthcare workers adequate uh, lab capacity. Um, outbreaks like Ebola and Zika have shown us that if you do not invest in laboratories and if you do not have a surveillance system, then you cannot really detect outbreaks early and do something about it. Um, and so I'm hoping that global health community will see laboratories as a critical component of health system strengthening as part of universal health coverage and not as an afterthought. I think it's, it's, it's important that we reject the mindset that poor con- for poor countries, just tra- rapid dipsticks and syndromic treatment is enough and poor countries cannot and should not invest in laboratories I think we should agree that every country, every patient deserves a quality lab testing and that universal health coverage must include essential diagnostics and we have to invest in, in laboratories. I think it's a package deal and we cannot just emphasize treatment or vaccination alone without worrying about how we are diagnosing and managing common diseases. It's SAS class time, and today we're going to look at the people behind the scenes who conduct those diagnostic tests. They are known across the globe as medical laboratory professionals, and their job is to know you better than you know yourself. Well, at least yourselves. They explore all of your hidden worlds through their tests and get an understanding of what is happening inside you so that you can find a better route to health. Our guest teacher is Krista Urchenko. She is a medical laboratory professional and also an ambassador for the society that represents these individuals in Canada, the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science. What is a medical laboratory professional? Medical laboratory professional encompasses a number of different professions, um, especially in Canada, which I'll mostly be speaking to. So there's a medical laboratory technologist, which is what I am. So... um, 
that is a person who works in a laboratory and analyzes and interprets laboratory testing and then releases results to a physician. Um, there are two other more specialty uh, versions of that, which are diagnostic cytologists and uh, clinical genetics technologists. So they work in um, kind of like an offshoot of laboratory technology. And then we also have laboratory assistants or medical laboratory technicians, um, depending what part of the country you're in. Um, and they also work in uh, the laboratory and are responsible usually for the more pre-analytical side. So those are the people most people would think of when they think of laboratory professionals. They're the ones who are going to be on the front lines, drawing the blood, receiving samples, um, and making sure um, everything kind of works in the lab in a, in a nice way there. Most people don't ever see medical laboratory professionals in the act. I think it's kind of exactly what you said. Oh, unfortunately, the lab operates kind of behind closed doors. I, I always like to say we're the mysterious box where samples kind of go in and results come out. And most people only know of the lab if something goes wrong. <laughs> unfortunately, usually, you're, oh, but the lab lost my sample, the lab this, the lab that. So I think that's where the disconnect is. We're usually, you know, I don't want to say we're always in the basement. I think that gets us a bad rap, but... <laughs> Um, you know, we're usually off to the side. We're not on, uh, right um, in the patient's face. I think it would be quite a bit different if, you know, you had a technologist sitting in the room right next to a patient and running all of the testing that uh, the, the doctor or nurse has requested. So I think a lot of people don't, don't think about it and don't know about it. I mean, I was kind of in the same situation as, you know, the, I think the general public as well. Um, when I was doing my undergrad, I had no idea that laboratory technologist or laboratory science was a specific profession. Obviously, the profession itself, as a laboratory technologist, were regulated, um, were licensed in, in most provinces, so I have to pay a licensing fee every year. Um, but, I, but I didn't know that existed. So that's kind of, I think, where, where that disconnect is, is it's not something that's, that's readily discussed, which is really unfortunate because... Uh, you know, laboratory testing is very, very vital in healthcare. I think there's a statistic out there that says doctors make diagnoses usually based on laboratory tests. So 70% of the time, we're using laboratory tests to make a diagnosis, which is obviously very, very important. So I, I think it's really unfortunate that the laboratory isn't um, thought of in the forefront of of healthcare line with doctors and nurses. And hopefully that's something that's going to be changing over the next couple of years. You're an ambassador now for this profession. How hard has it been to get people to become more aware of medical laboratory professionals? It's very challenging, to be honest. And it's sometimes it can be a little disheartening, uh, definitely. But uh, that's, that's my goal of being an ambassador because... Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of knowledge and there's a lot of really good work that goes on in laboratories that is very, very beneficial for healthcare. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of talk in healthcare now of trying to remove those silos and have, you know, cohesive interprofessional teams. And I believe there's a, a place for the laboratory in the conversation there. And that's my goal was being an ambassador and advocating for the profession and just getting the word out that, hey, there's a lot of extremely knowledgeable people who care about patients and care about patients getting the best care possible. And I think that's, again, an opportunity to utilize that knowledge down there. And I'm curious about what you have planned to increase awareness of the medical laboratory profession and the science. On a personal 
personal front, a lot of times at our lab, what we're planning to do is, you know, just to start doing that outreach and, and reach out to uh, other healthcare professions or other um, colleagues within the healthcare system and, and invite them into the tour of the lab. Because I find once we get individuals into the lab and even just on a short tour, they really appreciate the work that happens in there, kind of all the moving parts. And on a national stage, I know um, the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science um, obviously really promotes Laboratory Week and there'll be a number of stories um, and different promotions that are going to be happening through that. And the provincial societies also have, have the same aspect. They like to get, get the word out there and have um, different opportunities for the general public as well as other healthcare professionals to learn about the lab. Um, one of the really nice websites that the uh, Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science maintains is medlabprofessionals.ca. So if anyone's interested in learning more about the profession and what kind of happens behind closed doors, as we like to say, um, that's a really good website to start out. And there'll be uh, some really interesting stories going up throughout the week on there. Other than going for a blood test, where can the listener who wants to meet a laboratory professional go? There's probably a number of opportunities where they can meet someone from the lab. Obviously, besides the blood test that you mentioned, a lot of hospitals will have booths stationed um, with, within the hospitals. If they are within the hospital system or you know in, in the vicinity, check out a booth. Um, a lot of passionate laboratory professionals put on some great work there. Um, also, if if you're not able to to head to a hospital, feel free to reach out to a local society um, or national society, and they can connect you with someone if you're interested in a lab tour. That's, That's another great way if you are interested in the profession to have a peek of what happens in there. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it has made you want to learn more about how we investigate the world you can't see, but can make you sick. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming, and we want to show our gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.